Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Welcome again to Erickson Covenant Church. Um, thank you to Dana for the introduction. Like she said, uh, my name is Maddie. There are mostly familiar faces out there. I think I um, can name most of you, but I, there are definitely a few of you that I haven't met. So if we haven't met before, um, like Dana said, I grew up in Creston, and I grew up in this church, and so this community is near and dear to my heart. Um, even though I'm living in Calgary now, and I am going to school there and working at a local church, it is such a joy and an honor to come home to this community and to be able to share in your time of worship. We have just started a summer series working through the 13th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Um, Matthew 13 is this collection of Jesus' teachings, sometimes known as the Kingdom Parables. And I especially love these parables because they talk about God by talking about stuff. Um, In Matthew 13, Jesus tells stories by pointing to things that we can see and hear and smell and feel and experience. Um, And Jesus' parables in Matthew rely almost entirely on language that is earthly and physical rather than religious and spiritual. So last week we read a parable about a farmer and some seeds. Um, And this week we're going to read a parable about another farmer and some different seeds. My dad was telling me last week he had a bit of a panic moment while he was sitting in church. Um, Because as Dana starts reading this parable of the sower and the seeds, he starts to think it sounds a little bit too familiar. Um, See, my dad knew I was going to be preaching this week. Um, He knew I was going to be preaching at this church, but all he really knew is that what I had told him, I told him I was preaching a sermon on a parable in Matthew about a farmer and some seeds. And so as he's listening to Dana's sermon, he's feeling very concerned because he's worried that Dana and I are going to end up preaching the same sermon. And he knows me. He knows I've been preparing for a while now. I had already started writing. And so I think he was probably paying not much attention to the sermon and thinking about how he was going to break it to me that I had to write a new one. Luckily, after the service, my dad finds one of the smartest people in the room. That's Al. And he says, Al, is there more than one farmer soil seed wheat parable in the Bible? And Al says, yes, there is. And my dad breathes a sigh of relief. And I tell you all of this just so you know that this is a new parable and this is a new sermon. Uh, The first two parables in Matthew 13 are very similar. They're both about farmers and seeds. Um, And so it's tempting to read one into the other or to assume that they're trying to say the same thing, but they're really not. Conflating these two, two parables is likely to lead to a misinterpretation. So I just wanted to start by saying this is a new story and we're going to treat it as such this morning. Last week when Dana began us in this series, she talked about what parables are and why Jesus might have chosen to use them. I want to make one more point about these parables that I, could think give us, I think could give us a helpful framework to look through as we journey through this series together. I mentioned earlier these parables are known as the kingdom parables. And that's because almost every one of them begins with Jesus saying, the kingdom of heaven is like. And this phrase, the kingdom of heaven, is a central theme throughout the entire book of Matthew. Um, It's actually present in all the Gospels, but in the Gospels of Luke and Mark, you would have heard it referred to as the kingdom of God. But these two can basically be understood to be the same. These two phrases, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, occur quite a bit in the Bible, particularly the New Testament. Earlier in Matthew, when Jesus is teaching his disciples to to pray, he tells them to ask that the kingdom of God would come. And so many Christians still follow this teaching by praying that the kingdom of God would arrive. Uh, But I've often wondered, are we all on the same page about what it means for the kingdom of God to actually show up? And also, are we on the same page about what the kingdom of God even is? 
Well, I think these uh, kingdom parables that Jesus teaches in Matthew 13 are meant to show us how Jesus thinks of the kingdom of God. One more thing before we move on. Although the kingdom of God is generally associated with the New Testament, it is actually an important concept in the Old Testament as well. Janine Brown writes about this in her commentary on Matthew. She writes this. In the Psalms and elsewhere, Yahweh, Israel's God, is portrayed as ruler over all and reigning from the heavenly throne. Yet, the Old Testament prophets acknowledge that this reign of God is incomplete, as they anticipate a future time when Yahweh will fully reign over all of creation. And so when Matthew talks about the kingdom of heaven, he is talking about the reign of God, um, a reign that is here and among us already, and yet somehow not quite complete. A reign that is everywhere, but also hidden and mysterious, and works in ways that sometimes don't make a ton of sense. So we're going to read through the second farmer soil seed parable together and unpack it this morning. So if you have a Bible in front of you, you can turn to Matthew 13. We'll be starting in verse 24. If you don't have a Bible today, there should be an insert as well in your bulletin. Before we read, will you pray with me? God, we are grateful that you speak to us in so many ways. Through your word and through one another, but also through the stuff of creation. We can look around us at this beautiful valley and beyond and see yourself revealed. And as we dive back into the text today, I pray that you would give us ears to hear what you have to say. May we see this parable with fresh eyes and may we leave this morning knowing a little more of you and a little more of what your kingdom looks like. May our hearts be open to know you, God. If we haven't tried to know you in a long time or if we think we know you enough already, or if we are tired of trying to know you at all. We trust that you are present here with us today. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. Listen to the words of Matthew 13, verse 24. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. And the servants asked him, Well, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Instead, let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it to my barn. So I happen to know we do have some gardeners in the room, right? I mean, I think there are only a handful of us who don't know the tedious work of weeding. It's bad for your back, and it takes a long time. And after you're finally finished, all it seems to take is like 24 hours and a good rain before all the weeds come back. But we know that the alternative is a lot worse, right? If we choose to leave the weeds another day or another week or, heaven forbid, a month or two, your strawberry patch is going to start looking like a jungle, and it's just a disaster from there on. And so when the servants in the parable notice the weeds growing, I think they do what any good gardener would do. They rush to pull them up. But the man who sowed the seeds doesn't seem to think this is a good idea. He's concerned that if the servants try to weed the field, they're going to end up pulling the wheat up along with it. Now, the Greek word used for weeds here is the zanion, and it's referring to a specific type of poisonous weed that we would call darnel. 
And just to see just how much Jesus actually knew about agriculture, I took a look at the Wikipedia page for Darnell. It turns out Jesus knows what he's talking about, and the man in the parable has some legitimate concerns. Uh, Because Darnell is a poisonous weed that is actually organically related to wheat. And so the two are almost impossible to distinguish from one another, especially in the early great stages of their growing cycle. Uh, Furthermore, when Darnell and wheat are growing together, um, their roots will start to get entangled underneath the soil. So the farmer in the parable is right. If they try and weed the weeds, they'll end up weeding the wheat with it. And what's interesting is there, there were actually some rules regarding this specific weed during the time Jesus was on earth. Darnell was well known in ancient Palestine, mostly for the nuisance it caused farmers trying to make a profit off their wheat crop. And in the Old Testament, in the scriptures for the Jewish people, uh, there was actually a law that forbid two kinds of seed from being grown in the same field. And so if a farmer found out that Darnell had infiltrated their field, um, normal practice was to destroy the whole crop by just burning the field and starting over. And the people living in ancient Palestine, the people Jesus was talking to, they would have known this well. And so what we'd expect in this parable is for the man, the owner of the field, to say, you know what, we know there's weeds here. We can't uproot them for risk of ruining the wheat crop as well, so we may as well burn everything and start over. But this farmer seems to have something on his mind besides making a profit. Instead of instructing his servants to burn everything to get rid of the weeds, he instructs them to save everything to keep the wheat growing. Darnell only shows itself as different from the wheat at the very end of its growing cycle, when it's ready to be harvested. And so waiting until the harvest and separating the weeds from the wheat then would have been tedious and much less efficient than burning the whole crop to begin with. But this slow and patient method is exactly what the farmer seems to have in mind. Let's take another look at what specific instructions the farmer gives his servants. After telling them to leave the weeds alone for now, He goes on to say, let both, that is the weeds and the wheat, grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. There are two things that the farmer makes really clear here. First, there isn't going to be any weeding done until it's time to harvest. And second, when the time to harvest does come, it doesn't seem to be the job of the servants anyway. Here's the thing. Jesus knows that there are both weeds and wheat in his field, but he doesn't seem very surprised by it. In fact, he is so unbothered by the presence of the weeds that he, he tells us to just wait and let them grow. Wait until it's harvest time. And the church has often been accused of its tendency to get obsessed over who is in and who is out. And unfortunately, I think this criticism is sometimes well-founded. Because there is something in us that drives us to want to protect the church or to defend God's territory. We feel like we have to make sure that people who walk through the church doors are the right people, here for the right reasons. People who know God in what we think are the right ways. And let me be clear, I don't think this tendency is exclusive to people who call themselves Christians. I really think it's part of our human nature to want to set ourselves apart from others to divide amongst ourselves and divide again, whether that's based on class or race or political leaning or any other variety of things. And I can't speak for everyone here, but I know I myself often want to know that I am right. And I don't just want to know that I'm right. I want to know that the other person who holds a different opinion or point of view, I want to know that they're wrong. But according to Jesus, that's really not how the kingdom of God works at all. 
The farmer in the parable that Jesus tells is willing to wait and see how things turn out. He works slowly and with patience. He doesn't really seem concerned that there are weeds in his field. He knows they'll be taken care of eventually. Instead, he chooses to care for the entire field, weeds and wheat included, until everything has had a chance to grow and flourish. Now, this isn't the only place where Jesus talks about this principle of withholding judgment. It was actually introduced earlier in the book of Matthew, during the Sermon on the Mount. This is in chapter 7, where Jesus famously says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, I want to say this. As much as I have witnessed some Christians write people off or make assumptions about their relationship to God or to faith, I've often um, also seen the church faithfully hold to this principle of non-judgment, this principle that Jesus defends so often. And it is communities like this one that encourage me, communities that commit themselves to being no less welcoming and no less inclusive than Jesus was. But for the people who Jesus was talking to at the time, um, this stance of non-judgment was actually one of the most difficult parts of his teaching. The people following Jesus at the time had a very particular vision for the kingdom of God, one that had a lot to do with national political deliverance from the Roman authorities. And so they had big ideas and big hopes and dreams for how their Messiah would come. They wanted to see him ride in on a horse powerfully and separate the good from the evil. And they wanted to see him judge those who they deemed wicked. But as Jesus begins his ministry, teaching and healing and interacting with a variety of people, it doesn't take them long to realize that Jesus' plan seems a bit different than theirs. And the way that he describes the kingdom of God is not what they expected or hoped for at all. The parables of Jesus make the paradox of the kingdom, this idea that the kingdom is here but not yet complete, it makes that really clear. And Jesus instruct, and when our human tendency is to rush in and make things come now or happen now, Jesus instructs us to wait and let all of it, the weeds and the wheat, grow until the harvest. Because when we look around us and try and decide who belongs in the kingdom and who doesn't, we cause more damage than the weeds themselves ever could. Think about it this way. The enemy who came in at night and planted the weeds, he couldn't uproot the wheat. But the thing is, is he didn't have to. He just had to come in and plant weeds and then wait for the servants to arrive and try and weed the field. We were never meant to decide the difference between the weeds and the wheat because we don't know the difference, and we can't tell the difference until the story is over. Right now I'm entering my third year in a Bachelor's of Theology, like Dana said, but before I was studying theology, I was actually studying biology. And I had a few chemistry labs, and something we would do quite often was perform litmus tests. Um, Some of you might be familiar with what a litmus test is, um, but if you're not, litmus is basically a mixture of dyes that change color when it comes into a contact with uh, an acid or a base. Uh, Depending on which color the litmus strip turns, you know whether you have an acidic solution or a basic solution on your hands. There are different litmus strips that change color at different pH levels. We had this nifty little chart that showed you which indicators indicate what. I know I'm making chemistry labs sound super exciting, and I'm sure you want to hear more. But here's my point. Christians have often used a variety of litmus tests to try and decide who is a real Christian. Um, And we use these litmus tests as a way to protect the church or defend the church. 
That's part of our tendency. And we can base these self-invented litmus tests on anything from people's church attendance record, uh, maybe their sexual orientation, um, the way their family behaves, or the way they speak. And I'm not saying that our faith shouldn't show, because it should. Our faith has to be real and practical, and it has to show up on the outside. But I think it should show by the way that we resist this oh-so-human urge to place people in boxes and categories that Jesus does not want us to place them in. Because the kingdom of God doesn't need us to protect or defend it. The farmer in this parable is insistent that everything in his field should have the chance to grow before it is uprooted. And it seems that Jesus is far more concerned with his followers writing people off than he is about the enemy in his field. However, this parable does have a darker side. This is one of the few parables that Jesus gives us an explanation for. Um, You heard him give an explanation for the parable you read last week. Um, But after this week, from here on out, we aren't so lucky. He tends to stop giving us the answers. However, in this case, he doesn't so much offer up an explanation. um, Rather, his disciples ask him for one. Let's keep reading. This time we'll start in verse 36. Then he, Jesus, left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. Jesus answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. That's Jesus. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. And they will throw them into the blazing furnace where there there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. So clearly, this is not a parable that tells us our choices don't matter. As freely and graciously and persistently as God offers us grace, there will always be the choice to reject it. Jesus' interpretation of the parable makes that really clear. And part of God's kingdom is the making right of all that is wrong and unjust. And in order for that to happen, what is good will have to be separated from what is bad. Jesus' point is that right now, we can't tell the difference, and it's actually not our business to anyway. Let's take a bit of a closer look at this explanation Jesus gives. First, notice the change of scenery. You might have missed it because I broke up the passage into two parts. Um, But when Jesus is telling the parable, he is outside. Um, The crowd is on a beach. He is actually sitting in a boat out on the lake, and he's speaking to him that way. But then the text says he leaves the crowd and goes into the house. And that's where Jesus' disciples then come to him and say, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. Also notice how the disciples give the parable a name indicating that in their mind, this is a parable about weeds. The existence of the wheat seems to momentarily slip their mind. And so then Jesus gives them this explanation. And when I first came across this parable, I read this as a warning to those who don't have faith in Christ, which I suppose is a fair reading at first glance. But what I was forgetting is here, Jesus is only talking to his disciples. These are men who have followed him for a long time. They trust him and know him well. And so this isn't a warning to those who aren't Christians. Rather, it's an assurance to those who are Christians that justice will come. An assurance that um, God will make all things right. This isn't Jesus telling the world they better watch out. This is Jesus promising his closest friends that things will turn out in the end. 
This last semester, I was taking homiletics, which is basically a class on how to write and preach sermons. And I love writing, and I love preaching, so let me tell you, I worked my butt off in this class. I'm not actually joking. Each student got a chance to preach twice to the rest of their class, which was a really great experience. I think I practiced the one sermon something like seven times before actually preaching it. It was a bit excessive. But I happened to know that the prof who was teaching the class, he didn't hold a particularly high view of women in leadership um, or women preaching in the church. And so, man, I so badly wanted to prove him wrong. I wanted to show him that women can preach and women should preach and they should be encouraged to preach. And I know that you folks see Dana up here preaching often and you see how clearly gifted she is. And so seeing um, a woman up here preaching isn't something that's weird for you. Uh, But in this situation in my class, I was one of three girls. Uh, And so at the end of the semester, during the last class, the prof actually addressed us all and he told us... um, that although he had had his doubts about us ladies preaching, uh, we had actually proven um, ourselves worthy to be listened to. He even graciously mentioned that he would listen to us preach in an actual church, one that he attended. Wow. (laughs) Now, as much as I can joke around about this now, at the time I was so hurt and so angry and sad and frustrated all at once because I didn't just want this prof to think that I or the two other girls beside me had worked hard enough to make our way um, to a place where we were able to speak, If you know me, you know it absolutely breaks my heart when any woman is ignored or patronized or discouraged from preaching because of her gender. I mean, when churches silence the voices of women from the pulpit, they are effectively stopping the truth of God's word from being proclaimed, and I think that's a tragedy. And so when I looked around the classroom that day, I saw my classmates as future pastors, and I saw this prof planting harmful seeds in the soil of these future churches. Seeds that could grow into weeds and weeds that could foster unhealthy attitudes about women. And what does Jesus tell me to do? To let him sort it out? To just wait? Like, those two things are not things I excel at. Like, sort it out myself and do it right now is definitely more my style. And I wanted so badly to have some way of changing this professor's mind. Um, But the truth is, I can change every person's mind about women in leadership. I can't undo the damage that might be done by professors like that. And I really had to take a look at my own heart and see if I was willing to trust Jesus enough to make this situation right. Because weeds are all around us, in our churches and our workplaces, in our university classes. And as tempting as it is to start weeding, Jesus calls us to wait and to trust that in the right time, he can handle it. Now, let me be really clear here. This is not a call to ignore injustice. I need to admit that I did bring the situation to the Dean of Theology, and we had an extensive discussion about how problematic these comments were. I'm not about to let that kind of misogyny go unchecked. And there are countless places in Scripture where God calls us to resist evil, to stand up for those who are oppressed, to work against injustice. Jesus' point is then when, when we try and push back with anything that is violent um, or aggressive, when we push back against the enemy with retaliation or give any response that is reactionary or judgmental, we do more harm than the weeds ever could. And harm will be done to everyone, the weeds and the wheat combined. And Jesus calls us to a patient and non-violent faith, a faith that, in the words of Paul, is not overcome by evil but overcomes evil with good. And look, I get it. It can be endlessly frustrating that the kingdom of God doesn't show up more overtly or more visibly or more quickly. But the promise that comes out of this parable is that God is not unaware or blind to the pain in our lives and to the brokenness of our world. 
God calls us to resist evil, but this parable warns us that even if our best intentions are committed to an aggressive weeding, they will do more evil than evil can on its own. Last week, Dana told us that as we journey through these kingdom parables, she wants to leave some room for unanswered questions. And no offense, Dana, but at first I was not down with that idea. (laughs) I'm a classic type A person. I like to know what's going on. I definitely like to have the answers. And leaving room for unanswered questions really didn't put my heart at ease. But as I continued to prepare for this sermon, I realized that my attitude really was exactly what the parable is warning us against. When we want to have a list, a list of who is in and who is out, Jesus says, actually, that's none of your business. And we want, when we want to know exactly how everything will turn out, Jesus says, just be patient, just let me handle it. We can be certain of the hope that comes when we trust in Jesus. That will always be true. But besides that, Jesus' parables often don't give us much to be certain of at all. They are elusive and complex, and they often raise more questions than they answer. And this is really hard for me, because I have a desire often to simplify things, make them black and white, to know what is wrong and what is right, and who is good and who is bad. But this parable shows us that good and evil can often resemble each other so closely that only God can tell the difference. Truth and justice will reign in the end. The weeds definitely will be separated from the wheat, and all will be made right. But in the meantime, it is simply God's desire for the entire field to be tended. So here's what I'm asking of you this morning, and of myself as well. Can we trust God enough to let him make things right in the end? When it's tempting to just put on our weeding gloves and start weeding, can we choose to wait instead? Be encouraged by this. From beginning to end, the good seed in the field is unthreatened. It continues to grow, and when it is ready, it is harvested, and it is brought into the barn. And God is radically committed to allowing everything in his field the chance to grow. So this week, may you hear the call of this parable to suspend judgment even for a moment, and to wait instead of weed, and to not be overcome by evil, but instead overcome evil with good. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up, and they're going to play us one more song. But while they're coming to the front, will you close with me in prayer? God, you are deeply invested in our growth. And we know that we can't explain the way that weeds seem to grow all around us. We know that like the seed, the good seed in this parable, our hearts and our lives and our relationships can be so easily entangled with evil. So God, if we are tempted to try and decide for ourselves who is in and who is out, may we have the humility to trust that one day you will make all things new. If we are uncertain about our relationship to you, may we have the courage to trust in your unfailing love for us. And if we are brokenhearted by the injustice present in this world, may we have the integrity to not be overcome by the evil around us, but to overcome evil with good. I ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen.